Luke 1. We're in verse 57 through 80 this morning. So far in Luke's account of the good news message of Jesus, again, remember we've we've walked through this, this first chapter over the last three Sundays now. Luke was originally writing this account to a man named Theophilus. And what we've been told so far, as we've gone through chapter one, is we've been told of two significant birth announcements, heralded by an angel. The same angel, both times, that angel's name is Gabriel, and those birth announcements were specifically given to two people, Zechariah, who would become the father of John the Baptist, and Mary, who would become the mother of Jesus. And as we've been learning over the past three Sundays in Luke chapter 1, the the whole point of this, the message that he's bringing to them is that God's redemptive plan of salvation for the world is about to unfold. It's about to to erupt and happen. It's entering into the world. Remember that, that the closing words of the Old Testament which had been 400 years uh, previous to this point, those closing words sort of hung over the people of Israel like a cliffhanger, kind of like a a Netflix season finale, right? Like this cliffhanger where you're just like, ah, what's happening next? And you know, we've got to wait for the new season. That's the way they had been feeling, in a sense, for 400 years. Years. Go back, if you would, just a few pages to the book of Malachi, chapter 4. You'll find it on page 802 if you're in the Pew Bible. It's really just a, a small flip back to the left. The closing words of the Old Testament, this is what was said. Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction." Those were the final words of the Old Testament. And again, then 400 years of silence. Just sort of this dot, dot, dot hanging out there. No prophets in Israel. No direct word from God to his people. A lot of time, a lot of generations of life had passed. And enough, 400 years to begin to doubt whether it was all really true. This dot, 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 just sort of hanging out there. God, are you going to do this? Will this ever happen? God, are you going to keep your promises? 400 years. But then, here we are, Luke 1. All of a sudden, the angel Gabriel shows up. And he shows up in the temple, 
in Jerusalem to a priest named Zechariah and says to him, the time of God's fulfillment of all of these promises has finally come. You and your wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a son. And he will be the first fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4. This is what Gabriel says of his son. If you're in Luke 1, look at verse 16. He says of this son, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What is that? It is a direct quote from Malachi chapter 4. And then just a few months later, this same angel Gabriel appears to Mary in the little town of Nazareth and shares with her that the other big promise of Malachi will be fulfilled in the birth of her own son. He would be the Messiah. He would be the Savior that God had been promising to send into the world ever since the, 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 the dawn of sin back in the Garden of Eden. Luke 1, 31. Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your room and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Those are messianic words. So you have these two wonderful, long-awaited-for promises made to two different people. But these two people, as we've learned over these last couple of weeks, had two very different responses, didn't they? Zechariah, who again was the priest, he was serving in the temple in Jerusalem. When he saw the angel, he did not believe what he was hearing. Why? I think because he assessed the situation and it didn't make logical sense to him. You're going to have a, a child. He's, he's saying, wait, my wife and I are way too old for that. We're way past the, the years of, of childbearing. That's not even a thought in our head. That's impossible. That was his response. But Mary, the lowly teenage girl, far from the priest serving in the temple in Jerusalem, she's just a teenage girl in the tiny town of Nazareth, who despite being a virgin, who also could not possibly have a child, she did believe. And her response was, nothing is impossible with God. That's a pretty remarkable difference, right, between the two. And as a result of her belief, Mary goes about rejoicing and singing and praising God and Zechariah, because of his disbelief, he leaves the temple unable to speak at all. God had made him mute. So Luke is writing this to Theophilus, and he's pressing home for his friend a question so far in chapter 1. And here's the question. Will we believe that God keeps his promises like Mary did? Or will we doubt like Zechariah. We're told both were righteous people. They were, they were God-fearing people, Zechariah and Mary. We can assume that both had been praying 
for these Old Testament messianic promises of God to come to pass. So when the angel says to Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Why did he not take God at his word? Well, I mean, apparently he struggled with doubt. He struggled with doubt. Do you ever struggle with doubt? Do you ever feel like God doesn't hear your prayers? Do you ever feel like God is silent when you need him? How about feeling like God has been silent for 400 years? Can you relate to that? You know, the subject of spiritual doubt is sometimes avoided in church. We don't talk about it maybe enough, but it's a common occurrence in the Bible. We need to talk about it. We can and we should talk about it in church. And so we will today. This is where Zechariah is at. He's, he's a doubter. And in our passage today, we're going to see how God turns Zechariah's doubt not just into belief, but into full-throated rejoicing and praising God. Luke wants Theophilus to see this. He wants us to see and rejoice in the fact that God hears our prayers and that he always keeps his promises. So look down at Luke chapter 1, verse 57. We're going to read the whole account here of the birth of John the Baptist. It says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his fathers, inquiring whether he wanted, or excuse me, what he wanted him to be called. And Zechariah, remember, he's mute. He asked for a writing tablet, and he wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, and all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
And the child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Does God hear and answer our prayers? Here's what I want to embolden you with this morning. And I think, do you have a slide? Did I get slides to you? Put this one up. Thank you. Here's what I want to embolden you with this morning. There's two, two truths. The first one is this. God has already answered our biggest prayer need. He's already answered it according to his loving and gracious redemptive plan for the world. We're going to see that in the arrival of Christ. Here's the second thing. That fact that God has already answered our biggest need should also encourage us that God will answer our other prayers according to his loving and gracious redemptive plan for our individual lives. He's answered our biggest prayer because of his plan for the world. But he'll also answer our other prayers because of his plan for our individual lives in his redemptive plan. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. So let's look at that first truth there. God's answer for Israel's prayer and the world's greatest need. And to do this, we got to key in on the song that Zechariah has just sung here. This song is known as the Benedictus. This is really the main idea of the whole passage, okay? I want you to grab that. This, what Luke is trying to communicate to Theophilus and us, this is the main thrust of what he's trying to tell us here. He's saying the cliffhanger of the Old Testament is about to be resolved. It's about to be resolved. We can assume that those in Israel who believed the promises that we read in Micah chapter 4 were actively praying for its fulfillment. Lord, yes, bring this day about. Bring about this salvation. Send Elijah the prophet to, to make ready, to prepare the way for the Lord. We can assume that they were actively praying that, and we can more than assume it. We can actually know it because Luke tells us that they were. Look again at Luke chapter 1, verse 8. It says, Now while Zechariah was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the burning of incense, that, that act by the priest, was a, was a representation of the prayers of the people. And at the same time, he's burning incense. It says, and the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. But what were they praying about? What were they praying for? Daryl Bach, who is one of the foremost scholars on Luke, says this. He says, eschatological hope was high in Judaism at this time, during this period. In other words, their prayers likely would have been marked by this longing for the Messiah and his appearance. And Luke himself shows us that these prayers for the Messiah, for Israel's salvation and redemption, were occurring. If you look over to Luke chapter 2, remember we're told there of two different people who were praying that way. Luke 2, 25, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, what? Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. 
He was waiting to see the Messiah, to see the Christ. Down in verse 36, there was a prophetess, Anna. A couple verses later, it says, She did not depart from the temple. She was worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were what? Who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. What were they praying about? Lord, send this Messiah. Baca's right. That expectation was high in Jerusalem. And as these prayers were being offered outside of the temple, that evening back in verse 10 when Zechariah is doing his duty, what does the angel say to him? Look at verse 13. The angel says, Your prayer has been heard. Now, it's easy to immediately think, if you read on in the text, that the prayer that was heard has something to do with Elizabeth's infertility and this couple's hope for a child. But don't go there yet. In a few minutes, I'm going to tell you why I think that's actually very unlikely. No, the prayer that was heard primarily focuses on the plea for Israel's redemption. And this announcement by the angel of the child to be born, who would be John the Baptist, is given here as a pointer to God's redemptive plan unfolding. Your prayer has been heard. Luke 1.17, again, he, John, will go before him, the Lord, the Messiah, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient of the wisdom to the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. That's the answer to the prayer. So flash forward nine months, and this baby, John, is born. And that's what we just read. Zechariah's doubt has now been turned into belief. I mean, it's pretty hard to deny the baby in front of you, right? His doubt has been turned into belief, and this belief is confirmed by his obedience to the angel in naming the child John, right? That was not what anybody expected. There was nobody in their family named John. Why name John? And Zechariah says, no, that's his name. That's Zechariah saying, I'm li- I've listened to that angel, right? I am obeying what the angel has said. And the minute he does that, his tongue is loosed and he begins to praise God with a song, with a hymn. Notice that the song that he sings here has very little to do with his own baby. It has very little to do with John. John only gets brief mention in verse 76. The bulk of the song is about the other child to be born. Mary's child, the Messiah himself, Jesus Christ. Look at verse 68 again. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. That is not a reference to John because John's lineage was in the house of Levi and Aaron. It's Mary that we're told was in the lineage of David. This is the one that he's singing about. God has blessed us. He now understands that John's birth, this baby that he sees now in front of him, the reason his tongue has been loosed in believing is because he now understands that this 
birth means that another birth is imminent. And this other birth will bring about the redemption of Israel because a new day is dawning in which light will come into the world to displace the darkness. Verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I want you to notice what lies at the center of this song. Do you see the word covenant in verse 72? Look back there again. He says, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. What is that covenant? It's the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. This is Zechariah's way of putting all of the pieces of the Old Testament together and finally understanding this. God always keeps his promises. He's remembering like, oh, you, you made this covenant way back with Abraham and you've kept it, God. You, you keep your promises. The Abrahamic covenant is where God promised to save a people for himself and through that people bless the whole world. So these prayers for Israel's redemption weren't just for Israel's sake. They were for the, the sake of the whole earth. Israel's redeemer would also redeem the nations. God, you've, you've kept that promise. And how would the world be blessed? Verse 76. You, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. How would the world be blessed? There's a million problems in our world that cry out for redemption. And the Lord will address every single one of them. Verse 71, he says that we should be saved from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us. There's a, there's a big work of redemption that the Lord will address, every single one. But as a matter of first priority, humankind's relationship with God must be reconciled by having our sins addressed, by having our sins forgiven. So he says that's, that's what this child is coming to do. And how is this child going to be able to accomplish this? Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This word horn of salvation, it sounds really strange to modern ears, but the idea of a horn is a, is a symbol of power. Right? The horn of a, of a bull, it's, it's where his power lies, right? It's where his force is. This salvation that God is bringing about in this child who will be born is a mighty salvation. He will overcome Satan and sin and death at the cross. He will raise again to victory. He will put it down forever. Sin has no chance against this powerful Savior. So Zechariah is, he's believing now. And what has he finally learned to believe? He's learned to believe what Mary believed from the get-go. Look back at verse 32. 
This was Mary's response. The angel says, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary says in verse 37, Yeah, nothing will be impossible with God. Zechariah is a believer too. God keeps his promises. He has heard and he has answered our greatest prayer. He's always faithful to his covenant. No matter what difficulties or challenges we may face, God, I, my wife and I, we're too old to have a baby. But Mary, she's a virgin. This is impossible. No matter how big the challenges we may face, no matter how dark things may seem, it's been 400 years of waiting and not knowing and occupations and oppressions. The people are crying out. No matter how dark things may seem, the rising sun has come. And he's come to give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. God's end time salvation plan has dawned. And it gives us hope for the future and peace for the present. That's the message of Christmas. That's what we celebrate this time of year. And I hope all year round, as the old familiar carol says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee, Christ, tonight. The hopes and fears, everything we carry, every longing, every wondering, God You've met them in Christ. You keep your promises. And that's the main message of this passage. That's what, that's what Luke is trying to communicate here to Theophilus and to those of us who read it. And as we read it and we get that that's the main message, we can also take this away. That message is still at work. Yes, Christ came 2,000 years ago. He was born into that, that stable, right? And he lived his life righteously and perfectly before God, leading him all the way to the cross where he died for our sins and he rose again. But that message is still active. That salvation power, the horn of salvation is still actively at work because 2,000 years later, here we sit, still being drawn into that salvation by the power of that, that work of Jesus at the cross. He's still saving the world. And as we've said many, many times in this season of Advent, as we, we can look back and see that confidently, we can also look forward and believe because he's kept that promise. We know he's going to keep the promise to come back. There's still power in this message of salvation. And when he comes back, he will put to end all death, all disease. There will be no more novel coronaviruses to deal with. There will be no more heartaches and sorrows, and longings. Because when he comes back, he's going to reconcile all things. Come, Lord Jesus, is a confident prayer. Because God always keeps his promises. Amen? That's not the end of my sermon, though. Almost. But I said there's two truths, right? That's, that's the big truth. 
And, and that gives us great confidence, right? If we know that God has already answered our biggest prayer need, then we can have confidence to believe that God hears our prayers, right? So put it up, if you would, again on the screen, that, that second thing. We should be encouraged that God will answer our other prayers according to his loving and gracious redemptive plan for our individual lives. And I'm speaking, of course, to believers, those who've trusted in, those who are covered by what he's accomplished by fulfilling that first promise. God's answer to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer is something we still have to go back and, and wrestle with a little bit. A few minutes ago, I told you I was going to explain why I don't think the angel's word to Zechariah in first. 13, when he says, your prayer has been heard, I don't think it was a response to Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer for a child. Let me explain that. That does not mean that I don't think they had prayed for a child. They probably prayed that prayer a lot. A lot. Some of you have prayed that prayer, and you know you pray that prayer a lot. But what I just can't imagine is that they had been praying that prayer recently. Right? I mean, remember, he says, we're old, right? I bet it had been a long time, a really long time, years since they had not only prayed that prayer, but probably years since they'd given up on it. Resolved that that just was, wasn't a prayer request that God was hearing why? Again, because his response, he says, how shall I know this? Not like Mary. How, how, tell me, how is this going to happen? His, his was like, prove it. How will I know this? I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. There's more than doubt in that question, that response. It smells of cynicism. And I wonder, can we blame him? Can you relate to him? I mean, shouldn't it at least be understandable to us that Zechariah should doubt whether God ever heard his prayer for a child? Should he doubt that God was ever attentive to his and Elizabeth's cries and their longings and their well-being? Given that Elizabeth had spent a lifetime in barrenness. Can't this doubt be excused? No. That probably wasn't the answer you were expecting me to give, right? No. You, you think I'd say, of course we can understand that. I mean, I understand it. But it can't be excused. Why? I say no because of everything we've seen already in this passage. God is a covenant-keeping God. God hears the prayers of his people. And if God has already demonstrated to us in the arrival of Christ that our greatest prayers have been answered, how can we not then confidently believe that every other prayer and longing that we have will be answered? Now, here's the thing. This is the important caveat to that. It will be answered according to his purpose to include us in the fulfillment of and attainment of that salvation promise. 
God hears our prayers. He answers each one. The thing is, is when God answers our prayers, there's always and only one of three answers. Yes, no, or not yet. It's never maybe, as if God isn't sure yet what he's going to do. It's yes, no, or not yet. And the thing about the yeses is we never doubt him when the answer is yes, right? When the answer is yes, we're like, boop, yes, thank you, Lord. My faith is high. God is good all the time. Yes. It's the no's and the not yet's that cause us to doubt. Now, listen, I want to I I encourage you with this. When you feel like all you're hearing from God is a no or a not yet, it can feel like God has left you in the desert. It can feel like 400 years of silence, right? It can feel like that. But what we have to know, and not just know, but believe from Scripture, is that it's often in the desert where God does his greatest work to make his people ready. It's in the desert where God prepares us for his salvation work by turning our hearts to the Lord. John the Baptist was born to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry. Where was John the Baptist raised for 30 years in order to be ready for that ministry? Remember in verse 80? The child grew and became strong in the spirit, and he was where? He was in the wilderness. He was in the desert for that long period of time. Jesus is born and he grows up and he's about to begin his public ministry. Where does he go for 40 days in order to prepare at the beginning of his ministry? The desert. Where did God place his people for 40 years in order to prepare them for the covenant under Moses? The desert. Where did the Apostle Paul go for three years in order to prepare for his great ministry? The desert. Right? Why the desert? Because that's where God meets with his people and makes us ready by setting our gaze on him alone because that's all we have in the desert right he sets our gaze fully on him in utter dependence and faith because the pathway to the promised land always leads through the desert and I think Zechariah learned that here as well How many years did he and Elizabeth pray for a child? I don't know, but I'll bet it was a lot. I bet it felt like a long time. How many years was he prayerfully waiting for his chance to go serve in the temple in Jerusalem? Did you know that there were over 18,000 priests in Jerusalem? And if you got got chosen by lot to serve in that 
in the, in the temple like he did, that probably was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And here he is, an old man, and he finally gets that opportunity. How, how long do you think he waited and wondered if that was ever going to come around? And of course, like everybody else, his longing and waiting for the redemption of Israel, his entire life, his parents' lives, his grandparents' lives, his great-grandparents' lives. There was a lot of what probably seemed to him to be no's or not yet's. And the not yet's seem a lot more like no's in the moment, right? But what did God graciously reveal to him through all of the no's and the not yet's? Verse 68, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. How could he say that now? Well, his voice had just been taken away from him for about nine months. Sometimes you have to be silent in order to really listen. And in that silence, and I'm, I'm, I'm basing this off of his confident response that the baby's name is John. He believed that angel, right? That he probably was able to look back and say, God has seemed to tell me no or not yet a whole lot in my life, but, but look at how he worked all of that to prepare me for this moment as an old man where I get to finally enter into the temple and when I go in there, Gabriel's there and I get this message. This is the time. This is what God is doing. This is the redemptive plan that God is bringing about. And not only is this a plan for the world, but now I can see my piece of it. How God has included me in it far more so than I ever could have imagined. So what are you praying for? What about you? Lord, heal me. Lord, deliver me. Lord, restore me. Lord, my finances are in this condition and I'm waiting on you. My relationships are, are fractured and tattered and I'm wondering why, God, my infertility is, is crushing me, God, and I want to know, will you do something about this? I have health problems. I'm oppressed. There are injustices. I have no's and not yet's piling up. Don't get discouraged by doubt or despair or cynicism if you're not hearing an immediate yes from God the no's and the not yet's do not mean that he's forgotten you. It's just that he's preparing you for what he's already promised to deliver. You may be in the desert, but that's where God meets with his people to turn our hearts towards him in dependence and faith so that he can deliver what he's promised to deliver. The peace of salvation has already dawned in the arrival of the Son and the hope of the salvation that is ready to be revealed is ours to cling to. That's what we've been talking about in First Peter, right? Before we came into the Advent season. 
He wants our eyes fully fixed on him. He wants our dependence fully placed on him. He wants our hearts longing for only the redemption that he can provide. He's preparing us. He's making us ready for the salvation of the Lord. He keeps his promises. He hears our prayers, and he will answer every one of them, even if the present answer only seems to be a no or a not yet, we can be confident that he's at work in our lives and in our prayers for his glory and our good. And when the story is fully written, we will all be able to see it clearly and we'll be able to rejoice as Zechariah did, saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel because he has visited and redeemed his people. Amen? Amen. Now I'm done with my sermon.